Today on the Almond Journey podcast. The board of directors really works hard to make sure we're focused in the right areas and putting you know, resources behind issues in the industry, be they on the farm or, or globally, where we can you know, move the needle. Almond Board of California President and CEO Richard Waycott joins the show. to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to drive up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities, and advance the almond industry. Today's episode takes us to Modesto, California, to visit with Richard Waycott, President and CEO of the Almond Board of California. Richard has been in this role for just about 20 years now, and over that time, he's seen the production of California almonds triple from about 1 billion to about 3 billion pounds. In today's episode, Richard and I will talk about the journey that initially led him to almonds and some important international travel that has taken him in recent weeks to Spain, Portugal, India, and Dubai. Through those travels, Richard shares some takeaways about the global supply and demand equation for almonds and how this will inform ABC's strategies going forward. A lot of important stuff to dive into here, but I asked Richard to start us off with what initially led him to almonds about 20 years ago. I grew up in Los Angeles and I went to New York University, so I went from one big city to another. And I majored there in in international marketing and management. And the first job I had right out of college was in Manhattan in the nut trade. I was importing and exporting uh, hazelnuts and peanuts and Brazil nuts and cashews and all those things. Didn't touch an almond back then, but that was my first job for about three years. And then I went on to working uh, in agribusiness and B2B and B2C products uh, in many places, but spent almost 20 years in Latin America doing that between uh, Venezuela and Brazil. And then came back to the States and I was really interested in uh, sort of the health food trends, uh, different foods that were growing exponentially in American diets and elsewhere. And we came across uh, almonds and other nuts. And then uh, quite amazingly, uh, the Almond Board of California was looking for their new CEO. And they placed an ad in the Wall Street Journal one day only. And I was reading the Wall Street Journal at that time and saw the advertisement and thought, well, this might could be an interesting, interesting job and, and you know, learn more about the business. And it's incredible growth. It's, you know, over 80% of the world's production in, in a valley 500 miles long, 70% export. So just um, really, really interesting. And at that time, we were really just beginning all the human nutrition research. So it was uh, at an incredible inflection point where this business or this organization and, and the, the business was trying to really reposition almonds in the hearts and minds of consumers around the world by clinical trials and doing, you know, just a lot of basic research to be able to talk responsibly and factually about what's in an almond and what it can do for you. So really um, interesting time to get involved. Yeah. And what a sign of the times, an ad in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, now you'd find it online all, all over the place, I'm sure. But this is 20 odd years ago. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole world has changed in a, in a number of ways. And you know, you have been personally a world traveler here as of late, and I want to talk about some of these adventures. It was this trip that you recently took to Spain. Maybe can you uh, take us back to sort of the goals and the mission uh, of that trip? Yeah, so the 
Almond Board of California's Board of Directors meets every two years and goes away for a couple of days to really contemplate the most challenging aspects of the industry and in the you know short, medium, long term, as well as the opportunities. And uh, we just had our last one in February. And one thing we always monitor and, and uh, as part of the job is uh, making sure you're understanding what's happening with uh, other uh, producing origins for our product, which primarily is Australia and uh, the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal. Almonds are grown in lots of other countries around the Mediterranean and the Middle East, but uh, not to a great extent. So all those countries import to meet their national consumption needs, mostly from California. But, um, you know, we just keep tabs on how Australia and Spain are, are growing. And one region that was pretty static for years and years and years is Spanish production. Uh, interestingly, 86% of Spanish almond production today, still today, is dry farmed. So they have thousands and thousands of, of acres of almonds in Spain, but they're dry farmed. So you'll see, you know, a tree here, a tree there, and so on. And they did not have until recently uh, really a, a large presence of irrigated sort of more conventional orchards like we have here. And that's changing. So they are investing quite heavily into either super high density, high density, or conventional orchards in Spain in various parts of the country. And uh, we expect that that will increase their production over time by maybe 100% of what it is today. So significant growth, getting up between 450 to 500 million pounds is what we estimate by 2030. And then in Portugal, a country that really didn't produce any uh, crop commercially anyway, they had to have you know, household almonds. But now uh, there, there was a tremendous uh, investment that the EU and, and Portugal made in a new dam on the Spanish border called uh, Arqueva, and it uh, now provides water, underground piped on-demand pressurized water to uh, what will ultimately be 170,000 uh, hectares, which is about, um, let's say, 400,000 acres. And uh, that is sort of being divvied up between several crops, but... Uh, the two largest are olives and high-density planting of olives, and then almonds being second. So we're looking at that point of origin, estimating that eventually they could probably produce 100 million pounds. So as we look at the European marketplace, there could be, between Spain and Portugal, an increased production in that market of, let's say, you know, 300 million pounds, something like that, that mostly would be destined to Western Europe. And so it's just something we need to understand to keep our eyes on uh, our investments in that area in terms of market development to make sure that you know, our grower money is being used as wisely as it can be and is not inadvertently sort of helping other producing countries to uh, increase their market share. So that was the point. And we, we uh, started out in the Barcelona area in the Northeast and really transitioned through all the production areas sort of down the east coast and across the southern part of Spain and then ended up in Portugal. Put on about 1,400 miles, I think, in the car. We visited about 50 different orchards, uh, visited with all the major, you know, production research entities in Spain that deal with almonds and met with lots of growers and, and uh, industry members. And so it's very enlightening. A lot of new uh, varieties being planted in Spain, all self-compatible. And you know, experimenting, as I mentioned before, with different types of 
of orchard architecture in terms of the density of, of planting. So, you know, very interesting. We'll have a baseline um, report coming out on that later this year that's available to the industry if they care to, to access it. And we'll just keep tabs. Same thing on Australia. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, really fascinating and, and important work. I'm curious, are these new orchards being planted, these new high-density orchards, and is that already underway? Yes, we saw tremendous uh, new plantations. And, you know, the, the thing in Spain that's sort of interesting that we learned was, number one, some of these new plantings are in areas that traditionally have late frosts, and they had a very bad frost this year uh, at certain parts of the production region that the estimate now is that the expectation for their production in, in this year is, is down by about 50% due to this frost. And we were, on, we were in orchards that didn't have one nut on the tree after the frost that occurred about a month before we were there. So they are planting in some areas that traditionally haven't been planted in. And the, the idea is there is that they've developed new self-compatible late-blooming varieties that can, you know, maybe avoid the frost danger. The other is that the reliability of water in Spain is, you know, has similar issues that we have here. And so a lot of these new irrigated areas are great if there's abundant water, but uh, they're also subject to, to uh, deficit irrigation in years where uh, there isn't as abundant water available. So uh, so we're we're predicting to also that we'll probably see year on year quite dramatic variations in their production. You know the potential's there for let's say 500 million pounds, but uh, we'll probably see you know pretty jarring uh, variations from year to year depending on their their water and uh, just their climate situation. Right. Yeah. And it, it, are there any other you know kind of interesting comparables you can point to between what a California grower would have to face versus a Spanish or, or Portuguese grower? Well, one thing is that they grow largely all hard shell varieties. And so they don't have, you know, the navel orange worm, for instance, issue that we do here uh, because of our soft shells. So that's an advantage in certain ways. They can reduce uh, pesticide applications because of that. Uh, and so there are a few advantages on the crop input side that they would have. The downside is that, uh, you know, our soft shell varieties are, are very much favored in, in large areas of the world, the markets. And so the Spanish varieties aren't that well known. The other is that they have a lot of different varieties. So uh, major buyers in Europe, for instance, that want to contract out many months and want to be assured they're going to get the variety and the grade that they want, like California, because we have a very large production here of several varieties, but we don't Primarily, if you look at our position report, it's, it's pretty concentrated within a few varieties. So the, the inventory and, and the availability of, of varieties and grades and the predisposition in, in many situations to, you know, have a long-term contract put into effect with a buyer in, in Europe is something that hasn't traditionally happened in Spain. So, so there are certain pros and cons. One advantage right now is that they're, they're attached to us. They're in Western Europe. So... The logistical nightmare we're living through certainly doesn't affect them in terms of putting product on a truck and shipping it to France or Germany. A different situation for us. Right. Well, you said something really interesting earlier that I wanted to follow up on. And sorry, I don't remember your exact words, but the message was kind of like, you know, want to make sure that the efforts put in by the Almond Board of California grow, you know, the market share for California almonds, not necessarily for others that might be popping up. Is that is that sort of a concern that has 
come on as of late due to the changes that are happening internationally? And, and how do you, you know, manage that? Well, let's talk about that a bit because it's, uh, it's certainly a more complex global view than we've had, let's say, you know, earlier in, in the 2000s. Talking about the European marketplace again, that market has grown consistently pretty much over the years. We've done a lot of work over there in terms of trying to convert Europeans into snackers with almonds. And that's been, you know, it's being very successful in France and Italy and Germany. And, you know, all the growth or the vast majority of the growth, since we represent probably about 85% of the world's supply now, 82, something in there, you know, all of our efforts benefited our exports for sure. And did they also benefit, you know, uh, we're raising all boats here. Did they also benefit in a way Spain and Australia? Sure, sort of inevitable. But when you're as big a share of the global production as we are, you know, it sort of comes with the job <laughs> that you're going to promote California almonds. Uh, people really don't follow very closely where their almonds come from when the consumer does it. So, or if they go into a product like marzipan or bakery product or something or candy product, you know, they, they sort of lose their identity unless the manufacturer puts California on the package. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's always a bit of helping, helping the other guy here through our efforts. But during that time in Western Europe, you know, local production wasn't growing. So all the growth pretty much that we were generating fell to California. And that's now maybe going to be different in the future. So we want to make sure we're on top of that. And you know, if we see our market share in, in Europe perhaps stalling out or shrinking a bit because of this, let's say, local production coming on, you know, we need to be thinking about that and planning on that. And, and does that change the level of our investments in Europe? And we deploy that money somewhere else where we have a, you know, more of a competitive advantage, let's say. So that's the, the situation there. I'd say in, in terms of other parts of the world, the, the major thing that concerns me are the retaliatory tariffs that went in with the last administration. They're basically still in place. And geopolitically, obviously, uh, relationships with China have probably gotten frostier than, than they were previously. And the prospect of, of pulling these retaliatory tariffs back, there may be some stuff going on behind the scenes that I don't know about, but uh, you know, certainly not in the media. I don't read about anything very positive in that regard. So uh, in the meantime... Over the past uh, a couple of years or a few years, while these tariffs have been in place, we've had uh, China and Australia agree to a free trade agreement. So to give you an example, and China at one point was our largest export market, our tariffs during the last administration went from 10% going into China to 60%. Meanwhile, Australia tariffs went from 10% to zero. So we have a huge disadvantage in terms of import tariffs into China. There are some mechanisms where importers can get relief about 30, 30% off of that tariff rate, which actually went from 60 to 55. So they can get down to, let's say, 25%, but we're still 25 versus zero. Similarly, in, in India, which is now our, by far our largest export market, the uh, Australians and India have signed a preliminary free trade agreement on certain products that would take their tariff rate, if it goes into effect, so it has to be ratified, from uh, the current tariff rates, they would get a 50% reduction on both uh, kernel and in-shell. And most of the product we ship to India is in-shell. So, so we have some you know, sort of structural trade issues that get so tied up in the geopolitical you know, uh, atmosphere, let's call it, that even though we're the largest specialty crop in the United States, we uh, aren't 
figuring necessarily largely when the trade negotiations go on. So we're headed back to D.C. Uh, next month with our annual delegation. We'll be meeting with the U.S. Trade Authorities and USDA and a lot of other agencies and also up on Capitol Hill just to educate about our industry and what's going on. The Almond Alliance of California, which is our sister organization, works very hard on on pinpointing trade issues and really pushing very hard with advocacy and lobbying at the political level to try and get these things changed. So there is a lot of effort being put into this sort of slippery slope of us getting ourselves into disadvantageous trade situations with other points of origin of almond production. And so we're, we're very cognizant of that and, and working on it. Right. No, thank you for that, Richard. I appreciate you kind of going into that. I think that's going to be valuable for, for everyone listening, kind of the behind the scenes look at some of these drivers and where the strategic focus is as far as market development goes. And you mentioned India and the importance of India. And I understand you got back from your Spain trip and what, days later, turned around and uh, went to that part of the world? No, I actually stayed over there. I uh, Well, first of all, this is the first overseas trip that I've taken since February of 2020. And the last trip I took was to India for our annual trade conference that we hold there in February. And then that's followed the following week by us uh, attending the Gulf Food Show, which is in Dubai, which is the largest because everything in Dubai has to be the largest. Uh, It's the largest food show in the world now and has a large U.S. pavilion. And we participate with a booth and basically um, do all we can to educate existing and new buyers from the Middle East region. But uh, yeah, I went from Portugal to India and we had our trade conference there this time in May because in February the COVID conditions weren't favorable for holding it. And um, we had an excellent exchange on what we're doing, uh, you know, what's happening in California with the outlook for the crop and, and all those factors, as well as what we're doing in India, working with their government agencies to make sure almonds are treated fairly in terms of market access issues and standards. And then we um, also go through our our very robust marketing program in India, which is the largest program we have from a dollar standpoint outside of the U.S. So, yeah, it's a great exchange and visited with some of the government agencies while we were there and uh, other industry members. And so we're very upbeat about the Indian market. Uh, We just finished yesterday a two-day global market development committee meeting here which is our budget planning meeting after we've been through uh, previous meetings defining the strategies. And, uh, you know, India is just at the top of the charts in terms of potential right now. China would be also, but with, again, the sort of the political and trade issues we have there, it's uh, not allowing that market to develop as quickly or robustly as we would like. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be um, building out our India program even more. And, You know, years ago, we were pretty much just in the northern part of the country in terms of consumer promotions and and market development. And then we went to the west and then we went to the south. And now we're going to a different part of the south we haven't been in. And we're starting to go to the eastern part. So we're becoming basically nationwide now in India in terms of uh, educating consumers and and promoting almond consumption. That's great. I understand you had a a special outfit to promote almond consumption while you were over there. (laughs) Well... From India, we went to uh, Dubai, and the reason for that was the INC, or the International Dried Fruit and Nut Council, uh, which is sort of the global association for dried fruits and nuts. They have an annual get-together somewhere in the world, and 
because of COVID, it had been postponed for two years in a row. And so we went from India to Dubai, uh, finally to have this uh, global meeting, which lasts uh, three days. And virtually every, you know, every nut and every dried fruit and every country is represented there. So it's quite the gathering. And because we have coming right up a uh, first time ever consumer promotion in association with Marvel Studios and the new Thor movie, which is coming out on July 8th, we've partnered with Marvel, a leader certainly in cinema, and we believe we're certainly a leader in terms of uh, the global nut business, to have joint promotions where we work almond content into also mentioning that this movie's coming out and sort of try and play off of different aspects of the movie and the characters to uh, make fun ads that are then uh, promoting almonds and also promoting, promoting the movie. At the INC meeting in Dubai, we, we have different presentations on the different nuts. So they're called roundtables. So we had the nut roundtable or the almond roundtable. Blue Diamond participates in and, and Campos Brothers and then the Australians and the Spanish also because it's a worldview. And just right after that, the chairman of our board, Brian Walbrink, and I dressed up. As, he dressed up as Thor. I dressed up as Almond Owl. If you haven't seen, we have a new character called Almond Owl. And he uh, dresses up like an almond. And he uh, is being used in advertisements directed towards millennials and Gen Z, the younger ones, uh, in terms of being part of their health uh, journey, their wellness journey, and being sort of the, the mentor and, and a and a sidekick to their daily lives. And then we also are using Almond Al in the television ads uh, with Marvel Studios. So if you see the ads, uh, you'll see Almond Al as part of the promotion we're doing with the Thor movie here in the U.S. only. So, uh, yeah, so we dressed up and we, we had a backdrop behind the, the phrase we're using in the States, which is weapons of wellness. So almonds are weapons of wellness. And we uh, had one of our colleagues there with a the camera, and we just invited people to come up and take a photo. Uh, so we were definitely the buzz of the ball that day, and uh, no one else did anything even close to it. So we sort of like to stand out and uh, make sure almonds are as visible as they can be and, and get the notoriety they deserve. So, yeah, it's a fun thing to do. Absolutely. And is is that the significance of these types of trips, uh, Richard's kind of so that almonds can stand out in these communities or, uh, you know, kind of what else are you hoping to get from a trip like that you took to India? Yeah. So the focus that I have when I travel to our different markets is mostly a trade focus and then market access or different aspects of being able to work with uh, the governments in those countries on issues particular to almonds in terms of importation or standards, that kind of thing. But largely it's with the, uh, with the trade. So we have a whole marketing machine here that deals with uh, all of the consumer promotions we do around the world. So that's well in hand. And occasionally I, I get involved in that, you know, within a market, specific market, but largely I'm focused on the industry and the importers and the manufacturers to make sure that they understand you know, who we are, what we're doing, how we, we want to help them develop uh, new product innovation, new aspects of almonds. And then I do bring in, you know, how our consumer research is teaching us new things about consumers in their market and how they want more almonds in their products and what their viewpoints are about almonds and how they fit into their diets. And, and so uh, a lot of it is focused in that area. And then I, I do usually 
depending on the trip. I'll also do media interviews to talk about the industry and about the product. So uh, every trip's different, but um, yeah, it's really more to do my part to engender the growth of the industry. Sure. And I understand it was uh, while you were over there that the May position report came out. So I'm curious to get you know your reaction to that and the reaction you heard while you were there. Well, in addition to uh, our spectacle of dressing up as Thor and Almond Al, we had back-to-back evenings where at 8 o'clock each night on those two days, we had the position report come out and then the subjective estimate come out. So again, being the buzz of the ball, not only the Thor and Almond Al spectacle, but then we had each night sort of during dinner <laughs> for two nights in a row, we had Almond stats being released that were all positive. We had a record export month in April, which I think took some people by surprise given all the logistical issues we've had, but that was certainly a good shot in the arm. And then we had a uh, the subjective estimate come out at 2.8 billion pounds, which again, was within everyone's expectations. It you know was a number that, despite the huge inventories we still have from from this crop year that we need to to ship, it was seen as a number at least that was you know manageable going into next year, and something that if we can keep shipping at these increased levels, that we'll be able to you know work down this existing inventory and then next year have a decent sized crop that we can market around the world. I will say that. Just briefly, one issue that uh, I think distorts people's views on on maybe the almond world right now, not talking about the production side, that's certainly just a lot of hurt going on there. But basically, you know, the 2020 crop was this massive crop, the largest we've ever had at 3.1 billion pounds. And if you take those two years, the 2020 crop and 2019, our industry grew by 37% in two years, which with the crop, the size that we are, that is just unheard of. You know, you don't have that kind of growth when you get to our size. So we had a lot of product increase in two years and, and we did a great job of marketing it. We, we had back-to-back record marketing years. In the 2020 to 2021 crop year, we, we had uh, a huge increase in shipments. So we were able to market it. So the demand is, is there. It gets a bit distorted sometimes, you know, pricing people take more advantage if, if the pricing is more attractive. But you know, the issue globally right now is not a issue of lack of demand. It's a lack of being able to service the market in a very efficient and logical way from a maritime, primarily uh, transportation aspect. And so that's created some distortions, created distortions because of you know, COVID and, and this huge run up in imports into this country and freight rates that resulted from that. You know, containers being out of place, not enough truck drivers, COVID, you know, you name it. But it's basically just this massive logistical debacle in a way that we're, we've been experiencing. And, and it's not a lack of demand. And, and people often say we have oversupply. Well, we have a disjointed supply chain that's causing inventory to be in a place where it shouldn't be and getting backed up. And so that gives the appearance that we have an oversupply. I, I would argue that we really don't. We have demand that would easily absorb that supply if we had our logistical supply chain system working normally. So anyway, I'd just like to mention that because I think we get obviously very concerned about what's happening with production costs and everything on the farm. And then we also look out at the world market and think we're in you know, a really bad position potentially. But um, 
really the fundamentals are quite good. In fact, if you don't compare us to last year's uh, shipments, which were this all-time record huge number, even with the logistical problems we have right now in COVID, we're shipping ahead of the 1920 crop year, which was a record year that year. So we're at above record pace, even with all these problems compared to two years ago. We're not at the same level as last year. And that's where the position report compares us to is always the prior year. So I encourage you to go and, and look where we are compared to sort of recent history. And you'll find that uh, our global shipments are, are ahead of uh, two years ago. And increasingly, they're getting closer to still ways to go, but closer to to this last crop year. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think anybody can confidently answer when the logistical issues will start to resolve and, and normalize a little bit. But it sounds like there's reason for optimism for once that does occur. Yes, I, I think um, the tremendous investment this industry's made, that the growers of California have made in, in creating markets around the world and consumers that want almonds and product developers that keep us way ahead of all the other nuts in terms of new products launched every year. All that effort, is that doesn't go away. That's there. And so, you know, these momentary, very critical problems we're having, they don't, you know, wipe out or eliminate all that effort that's been created and all that demand that's been created. So I believe very firmly once we get back to some normalcy here, we'll see uh, demand lead supply again. Well, thank you very much to Richard Waycott for sharing these experiences and really this global view of what's happening in the industry. I should make sure I mention that Richard was accompanied by Almond Board Chair Brian Walbrink on these trips, and we're also going to be capturing Brian's perspectives on a future episode of this podcast. So make sure you're subscribed and stay tuned for that one as well. We believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Richard Waycott, may have sparked a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of resilience, innovation, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please do me a favor and just pass this along to at least one other person in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together. <laughs>